Welcome to the QAV Podcast. If you're brand new, hello, my name's Cameron Riley. Welcome to the show. I'm one of the hosts. Um, this is a show where I chat to my mate, Tony Kynaston, who's a very successful investor, uh, and he teaches me everything he knows about investing. And uh, we use something called the QAV system that he's developed over the last 25 or 30 years, stands for quality at value, how to find quality stocks and buy them at the right value. Uh, So you'll hear us talk a lot about that. If you're confused, don't worry. I'll tell you at the end of the episode where you can learn more about how that works. Uh, But on this episode, 441, we're talking about hydrogen futures, the graph for MOZ, our portfolio performance so far this financial year, selling MTO, our stock tip performance uh, in the last couple of months, Tony's new idea to replace the three-point trendline graphs. A lot of our members will be happy to hear about that. Uh, YGCY is back on our buy list. Uh, CTP, IDZ's qualified audit, how we're going to handle mixed commodity miners moving forwards. And we talk a bit about MMS, CLX and EHL, CLX being Tony's stock of the week that he's going to drill down on. So um, there's a little bit more that I'll talk to you about at the end of this episode, but without any further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back to QAV. This is episode 441. We're recording this on Monday, the 11th of October, 2.20 p.m. Brisbane time, 3.20 p.m. Sydney time. How does it feel to be free, Tony? It's Freedom (laughs) Day in Sydney. Freedom Day. Oh, God, it's raining here. I just went for a walk and got soaked, so... (laughs) I think I'll be staying inside all week. Were you uh, listening to George Michael's Freedom song as you walked around? <laughs> freedom, <laughs> I won't let you down. Yeah. I won't pick you yeah. up. <laughs> freedom. Yeah, like uh, it's strange that restaurants are open, people are out without masks on. It just feels like I've gone to a strange country with strange customs. Yeah. yeah. And I still can't book anywhere. Like I can't, I'm like two and a half weeks away from having a haircut. It's really annoying. I like your mullet. I think it's good. You're bringing it back. You're rocking the mullet, the 80s mullet. Well, very exciting. Not so exciting down in Melbourne. Still pretty bad down there. But apparently Melbourne Cup's going to go ahead. 10,000 people going to be at the Melbourne Cup on November 2nd. So Yeah, and one of my friends has a horse running too, so I'm hoping that they can get to see it at least. Has the horse been double vaxxed? I don't know. I don't think you double vaxxed. The jockey has. (laughs) Oh, okay. They have. The owners have. Hey, speaking of horses, my horse won yesterday on your birthday too. And I didn't have a bet on it. What? Ah, that was your birthday present. I got $11.50 for the win. Come on. What horse was that? Never say nay. Really? It had a win? Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's a first. <laughs> <laughs> now I know why it won. You didn't bet it. You didn't yeah. back it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great for you. Oh, it was. It was a great feeling. won really easily and... Uh, I look forward to it, yeah, improving onwards and upwards. Good stuff. Well, speaking of onwards and upwards, let's talk about hydrogen, Tony. Wait on. What about your birthday? We don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, happy birthday. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I don't like birthdays, but it's it's my twins' birthdays today. They're turning 21. That's uh, kind of weird, isn't it, when your kids turn 21? Huge milestone. It is, yeah. It happened to me last year. Yeah, I remember. We're not throwing a party. Oh, I think they're going out to dinner with the mum tonight. We're not big. They're, they're not. They're like me. They're not into parties. They're like, ah, got too much work to do. Move on. Let's get it done. <laughs> what work is Hunter doing? <laughs> Making TikToks. Oh, right. He's okay. got to make TikToks. Right. That's, too many that's TikToks work these make. days, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, for him it's, it's work. right yeah. up there with podcasting. 
Yeah. And thanks to all of the uh, QAV club members that sent me nice gifts. I really appreciated that. Let me see. There was no, there was none. Okay. Hydrogen <laughs> Futures. <laughs> There's a new billion dollar project been announced by Anastasia and our mate Twiggy Forrest Ooh. to build a massive green hydrogen production facility in Queensland. So uh, I was running around looking for the hydrogen futures in commodity stocks <laughs> to see uh, what that's looking like. <laughs> I doubt if there is one. I'm wondering if this is why Elizabeth Gaines sold $9 million of her FMG stock recently so she could uh, get in on the ground floor with the hydrogen production business. Well, maybe. She's saying it's to pay taxes, which I would probably believe, but uh, she'd have a lot of options. Uh, But it's certainly why I think Twiggy's been ramping up the dividends and taking money out of FMG. I got to say, I mean, I know nothing about what it takes to produce green hydrogen, but it's nice to see an Australian mining magnate and an Australian government, for that matter, mm. making a significant investment in making Queensland a world leader in the production of green hydrogen, betting on the future of energy production, not on the rapidly slipping away past (laughs) energy futures. I don't know if it is rapidly slipping away. I mean, look at the price of oil and coal at the moment. Yeah, they're at the moment going up, but um, come on, we all know that there's the writing on the wall for those things. It's just question of when, not if. That's a prediction, is it? (laughs) Well, it is. And I got that straight from Steve Sammartino, who apparently when he was on episode five, season one of our podcast, according to Brett Fisher, who's just gone back and re-listened to it, and this would have been early 2019, Steve apparently predicted a pandemic which would uh, shut down the global economy and force everyone to work from home. I haven't gone back to listen to it, but that's what Brett said on Facebook. So I pinged Steve Sammartino and said, mate, you really are a futurist. Wow, I'm super impressed. He didn't answer your ping before you pinged it? Yeah. He he predicted the ping? (laughs) Yeah, he said, hey, thanks. And what for? For the message you're about to send me. All right, let's talk about Moz, if we can, for a minute. Chart M-O-Z. I was doing this one 5 o'clock this morning, trying to get the buy list ready to compare to your buy list. So Mosaic Brands, it was a big collapse here. Just it started... November 19, bottomed out with the COVID cough, but it was falling before that by the looks of it. And then it's been bumping around down the bottom there, trying to get back over a dollar. It peaked September 2018 at nearly $3.50. And then it's now trading at around 60 cents. When you look at something like this, I know we've talked a bit before recently about looking at shorter term graphs, particularly if companies have had major restructures, etc. For a company like this, how do you treat it? Do you just take this as business as usual? Do we have to drill down into what's going on there, why it fell late 2019? Yeah, I mean, you do. If, if it's just fallen off because uh, the business is deteriorating, then it's not worth trying to drill down any further. You take the five-year graph and just say it's a bad business. But if this is the business I'm thinking of, at some stage in the last five years, they divested a company called City Chic, which has just taken off. So potentially, maybe that happened at the time that the share price went down because you know the investors got a spin-off. The shares were spun off into something else. But I, I think the timing was before this or it's a different company. But anyway, that's what you need to do is drill down and try and work out whether there's a reason to look at the short-term performance or not. And do you bother? Like you've obviously had a look at Moz because it came up on my list. When do you bother to do that? When do you not bother to do that? 
I didn't bother, and the reason why is because I went back and looked at the different time periods. The three-year time period still looks like it's maybe it's just getting into a buy using the three-year, probably not. Yeah, maybe it is. I'd have to draw the lines. Looking at it quickly and eyeballing it, I'd say it's a sell, and I wouldn't like to use a range much smaller than three years. Like if you look at the one-year chart, yeah, it's a buy on the one-year chart, but one year is, a bit, is only 12 data points, so there's a fair bit of noise in the one-year chart. So if I looked at the three-year chart, in Stock Doctor and it looked like it was compelling, I'd probably drill down further, but it doesn't look like it to me. It looks like a sort of just the same sort of pattern as the five-year chart, really. Yeah, but then I'm starting with an H1 probably September 19, I think. It would probably be my H1 if I'm taking a Mm three-year chart. Uh, My H2 would be January 21. Could probably go a little bit later if I could go April, but still it's going to be a buy maybe or maybe it's got to sell after that right it's still got yeah, to look sell. At the sell i think the sell would may be june l1 march 2020 and then l2 would have originally been september 2020 mm. so the sell would have occurred around may mm. so the l2 has dropped a little bit so it's probably above its current sell line but then the buy line yeah the buy line's probably just crossed this month september 21 it's a little bit above but it's not like it's going sideways and it's not compelling really. No soup for you then, for Moz. I wouldn't necessarily go any further. I'm not saying that you couldn't go further and work out a reason why the shares dropped late 2019 and in which case it probably is just slightly a buy at the moment so you might want to look at investing in it but I haven't done the research to know if that's true. Right. Well, I was just wondering this morning because you know, how much time should I spend on this? How much work should I do in it? For me, if the graph was going up sharply at the right there, I'd do the work, but it's kind of just in buy territory, perhaps, at the moment. Right. Nothing to see here. Yeah, that's what I think. I want to talk a little bit about our portfolio, Tony. Like, we were looking like chumps there a couple of weeks ago after the iron ore collapsed, and we were below the SPDR 200 for the financial year. Last week, we're up 3%. This week, we're up nearly 6% with the 200 up half a percent for the financial, for the financial year. year. yeah. So right yeah. now we look like complete legends and champions. <laughs> for a couple of weeks there, we look like complete chumps. So there you go. The difference that a couple of weeks can make. We never look like complete chumps. Come on. It's, life's all about timing. Timing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Good time to up the advertising spend this week, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's looking good again. It's not as good as it looked like going back at the end of July when we were up 10%. But we were up 10% and the 200 was up 2%. So we were doing roughly five times better than it then. We're doing roughly 10 times better than it now. So I guess we're doing better now than we were then, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, yeah. But, again, it's a short Term data sets, a lot of noise in there. You decided this morning that we had to sell MTO because it's breached its sell line. Yes. But what are we going to replace it with? What did they say? We sent it through. Did you? Our stock of the week. Oh, I didn't see that. It's uh, CLX. We're going to replace it with CLX. CTI Hmm. Logistics, is that what that is? Correct. That's the one, yeah. Okay, and you're going to do a pulled pork on that, I think, today. I am, yeah. Before we get into that, though, I also want to talk about our stock tips, the stock of the week tips that we've been doing officially again since early September. They were all under water a week or so ago. Now, eh, not so much. Looking pretty good, actually. A couple are still down. AIS is down 11%. IGL's down 9%. Myers down 15%. It hasn't recovered from Jeff Wilson's sell-off. 
Thanks a lot, Jeff. We know you listen, Jeff. <laughs> Everything else is doing okay or at least hasn't moved at all. CGF is at zero. KRM's at zero since we bought it. Everything else is a little bit up though, so it doesn't look too bad. 70%. Yeah, I think we're kind of back to square. I mean, it's a, this is, again, small sample sizes. I think once we get up to like tracking sort of 15 to 20 recommendations, we might see it behave more like a portfolio rather than just be, you know, the vagaries of individual stocks shooting one way or the other. Yeah, of course, we only ever claim that we're going to get 60% of our balls will fly right. Correct. But too Correct. soon to be talking yeah. about balls flying right, I have to say, because I'm still walking a little bit funny this week, still a little bit tender. We don't need to talk anymore about that. All right, what do you want to talk about today, Tony? Musing on this rule to replace three PTLs. What? Yes, yeah, nowhere near ready to recommend it or to use it, but... I guess what triggered my thinking was that I often talk about using three PTLs and getting the first 20% of a downturn, which tends to happen, right? We're waiting for a trend to establish itself. So then I thought, well, why don't we use 20% and try and see if we can fit that into graphs and started looking at some. This doesn't work for every situation and there's got to be a lot more work done either by myself or by Dylan or someone like that to analyze it. But if you just look at any particular stock graph, I've got Mosaic Brands open at the moment. So that's as good as any, I guess, if I have a look at it. But let's look at the five-year. That's a longer-term trend. I think H1 still going to be September 2019. H2 looks like it's uh, November 2019, and you draw a line through those. What I'm suggesting... Why is not H1 back in September 18? Oh, is it? Okay. Let me just have a look. Can't be 8% from 349 versus, yeah, probably is actually, you're right. September 2018, H2. Is September 19. February 19. They would have had a sell about June 19. So we need an H2 after June. Okay. So then we're using September 19 as the H2. Yeah. Anyway, so my point is that if we take the H2 and look at a 20% decrease in that share price, so H2 on this case is 294. So it's going to be, you know, 58 cents below that. It's going to be mid sort of 250s, 260s. It becomes a sell on that way down, right, off the cliff. So it's going to be a sell probably in November 2019 or maybe December 2019, which is a good time to sell. And then if you look at the L1, L2 currently, so L1 is going to be March 2020. L2 is probably going to be August 2021. Mm -hmm. If you look at the price 20% above L2, L2 is currently at 45.5 cents. So again, 9 cents above that. So 54, that's 20% above, 54, 55. It's probably a buy right now, almost a buy right now. Yeah, current price is 60 cents. So it's a buy right now because it's trending up. So this has kind of just been a rough approximation of an idea. So I'm just going to start doing some research on it. If I can flesh out some rules that work in every sort of circumstance, um, which this kind of does cover most bases. It doesn't always pick the, kind of never picks the cross of a buy line or a sell line, but it gets us in and out in the same sort of general area. That's going to be a lot easier to code because we can just simply take like five-year monthly points, work out H1, H2, L1, L2, and then apply 20% decrease or increase on those and get our buy and sell. When does the border open up with Victoria? When does the border open up? They haven't announced it, I'm hoping, before Christmas. I think, you know, Brett Fisher will be hunting you down if you just get rid of the 3PTL and say, <laughs> oh, we're just going to do 20%, 30% above L2. We don't need that. He's spent six months of his life coding this bloody thing. You're like, ah. I haven't done enough research yet to prove this. It's just amusing. 
Yeah, you better go into witness protection, man, if you change that. Brett, <laughs> Brett will be hunting you down. In your email to me, you said buy when it's 30% greater than L2, but just now you said 20%. Did I? Yeah, it's 20. Sorry, that 20, must be a typo. Right. 20, wow. Yeah. So you're going to do some regression testing on this at some point and see what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I haven't quite worked out how to do it yet. And if we get an analyst and get into the definitive data, we'll do it that way. But yeah, I've got at least two years worth of buy list now. I can go back and check that against the three PTLs anyway. Or just pick a sample, see if it's worth progressing. How did you cook up this little uh, idea? Yeah, well, like I said, I, listening to myself talk about three PTLs and when you're buying in and buying out and the questions that we get, we often miss the first 20% of an upturn while the trend establishes itself. And we eat the first 20% of a downturn while the trend establishes itself. You know, if you think for the SKU metals group, we, the high price was about 25 bucks. We got out around 20. That's kind of 20% below the peak. I keep saying it enough to myself or to, to you or to other people who listen. Is, is that actually the basis for a rule? And I then looked at the graph and thought, yeah, it actually fits L2 and H2. If it rises 20% above the L2, we just uh, saying, okay, we think there's a trend now. That's it. Well, that's the, the hypothesis, yeah. Ken. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Sorry, Brett. Back to the drawing board, Brett. <laughs> well, no, we'll keep using three-point trend lines and Brett's fantastic calculator, which is such a great time-saving device. Yeah. We'll just do what we always do. We will challenge it. He's the champion. We have to challenge it and see if we can do right. that. GCY is back on the buy list, Tony. I, I spotted that this morning. Yep. Gascoin. So, Gascoin. It's a oil and gas company. Did a bit of research into it. Two things. It's under a takeover offer, which is potentially why it's back above its buy price. And it went into a trading halt today, which I noticed when I was preparing for the show. So we can't buy it today. So we'll see what happens. It was last time it traded on the weekend when I had a look, it was below the offer and the directors were saying, take no action, but obviously something's happened in between. So we'll see what happens today. Mm. And remind us hmm. what Gascoin do. Oil and Gas Explorer, but I'll just look it up in Stock Doctor and get my answer spot on. And oil is continuing to go well. Gold exploration and development, according to Stock Doctor. Oh, got it wrong, have I? Sorry. Yeah. I thought it was a oil company. No, you're right. It's a, it's a gold mining company. My mistake. Same thing. Oil, yeah. gold, you know. <laughs> Black gold and gold yeah. gold. Yeah, gold is still doing well. Who's uh, making the offer? I just, I'm downloading their statement. doesn't say. West Gold from memory. Oh, Another gold West company. West Gold, right. So this might be one of those cases where we're not the only ones who think it's undervalued. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, West Gold do, obviously. And potentially more. It's the first bid. So, you know, the first shot's... Never the last shot in the war. I'd expect it to be high bids. Right. Or Gascoin does something left field and does a, a Logan Roy and tries to take over a big company and a shitload of debt as a defence. Ah, uh, you're still watching Succession, <laughs> I see. I finished. Good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. Good show. Love good it. show. Yeah. Kind of crazy. <laughs> good to know. I don't own it. So out in the cold here. I wish I did by the sounds of it. Well, you still might be able to. I mean, it was trading below its bid price on the weekend, which is why I put it on the list to talk right. about. And who knows what comes out of the trading hole. We'll mm. see. I suspect another bid, but we'll see. CTP is back on our list. Who are CTP? Ah, this was the oil and gas explorer. Uh, Central Petroleum. Right. There you go. I knew we had one somewhere. <laughs> CTP, baby, you know me. Yeah, I just... Might be of interest to people. It's down 4% today, so I'll, I'll warn people on that. They're not oil either. They're gas, an onshore gas Yeah, producer. well, gas, good point. They often go hand in hand. Supply oil and gas from their Marini, Palm Valley, and Dingo fields. 
So that's all right. Oil and gas. Okay. They usually go hand yeah. in hand. You said that last week, right? Yeah. It's like the gas and the oil. Oftentimes, oil contracts and gas contracts are written at parity to the oil right. price. They often go in lockstep, but generally, if you're drilling for oil, you'll find gas as well. ADT of about 33,000, these guys. So they're sort of good for the bigger end. They're small. No, 33,000. Yeah. Oh, it's big for me. <laughs> Indoor skydiving. They have a qualified audit. Yeah, man. And this is like, I guess this is uh, topical given that I've asked uh, Steve Mab from the ASA to take a look at Appendix 4Es for me. And while doing prep for a submission on that, I looked at the ASX rules and uh, one of the Appendix 4E questions is, A, are your financials audited? B, in that audit process, was there a material concern or a qualified audit? And C, if your financials aren't audited, do you expect when they are audited that they will contain some kind of qualification? So in the space of like 30 days, Indoor Skydiving put out their Appendix 4E and said, no, the financials haven't been audited yet. That's it. 30 days later, report comes out, qualified audit. Wow. Material concern over the going concern, right? So we'll give IDT a pass and that maybe they didn't know, but really. IDZ, I think it is. IDZ, is it? Z. Sorry, they call it IDT. IDT is a different company. Indoor skydiving anyway. I'll give them a pass because I've got nothing to, no reason to say they didn't know. But I mean, the ASX should at least look at it. You're 30 days away from an audit being handed down and you didn't know that the auditors were looking at whether you could continue trading. Yeah, right. They hadn't discussed it with you, right? So anyway, I don't want to skate on thin ice in terms of you know falling foul of some kind of uh, libel lawyer, but hmm. uh, please give me a break. Come on, ASX, have a look. Indoor skydiving. Very strange. And just another example of, you know, just the strange things that go on with these Appendix 4Es. I shouldn't just single out indoor skydiving. There are other companies that uh, either don't answer the question full stop or uh, answer it with remarks like, check our annual report for our audit, which is not the answer that the ASX is wanting. It's, It's quite clear what they, you know, what you have to answer. Yes, no, maybe is are the answers to the questions. And it just gets ignored so often, which means you have to go through the annual reports and, uh, you know, just adds time to your analysis. And on top of that, you know, Alex and I will, as an example about how to find a qualified audit, I was showing her, I thought, I'll pick a big company and show her how to find an, an audit statement in a big company. So I picked like the biggest or one of the biggest, BHP. <laughs> in fact, she asked me, she said, how do I find an audit statement in BHP's annual report? It took us like 20 minutes to find it. Seriously, members who are listening to this, go and look up BHP's announcements. You'll find something like 600 pages of stuff they've announced. And the audit report is not near the end. It's buried away in the middle. It's not even in the contents to the reports, to the filings. You got, you know, the US filings, the UK filings, the Australian filings, and the Australian filings kind of rolls up some of the other ones. It's like, hundreds of pages long. The annual report doesn't appear in the index or the table of contents. Sorry, not the annual report, the auditor statement. And you say you have to go digging for it. It's like, it's just seriously, it's probably the most important thing, any annual report, is what does the objective auditor, the eye of Sauron, think about the landscape for BHP, right? Yeah. 
It's the first thing an investor should look at. Yeah, but BHP is not going to have an order problem, surely. No, and we'd read about them on the front page of the Fin Review if we did. By the time it took, you know, rear window to go through and comb through 600 pages of text to try and find the audit report without an index. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. If BHP can get away with it, this kind of obfuscation, mm. you know, how can the ASX beat up on a small company? But getting back to the tendency some of these companies have to not be clear about it in their forays, what, what do you think's going on? It seems like a pretty simple thing to do. Just state clearly what the position is uh, with your audit. Why would they say things like refer to our annual report? I suspect, and I think I'd be the same and if I was in the company secretary shoes. I think they see it as bureaucracy, right? They've filed the annual report. They've filed it with the auditor's statement. Why do they have to also do an Appendix 4E file? But they're doing an Appendix 4E anyway. It's a listing rule. Yeah, when I've seen these Appendix 4Es and I've seen the audit statement, it's a couple of lines anyway. It's not a, it's an onerous thing that they have to do. What's the big deal? I just think it's been let slide for a long time by the ASX. They haven't pulled anybody up. They haven't made an example of anyone. Right. And I think it's because, you know, people don't... Yeah, it's law of large numbers. There's, there's what, half a dozen companies on our watch list that have qualified audits. Maybe that's there's only a dozen companies that are on the ASX that have a qualified audit. So most times it's, a, it's completely irrelevant. Mm. But it's so important on the times when it's not that they need to put their returns in properly. Okay. Mixed commodity miners. I was looking at MIN this morning, actually, trying to work out how to think about commodities for somebody like MIN. Yeah. So when we talked about AIS in particular, you know, I gave it a pass because it's a mixed commodity Mm -hmm. miner. And uh, even though it's um, sells iron ore, which has gone down in value, at the time, I wasn't sure whether that was good enough for it to be a sell based on a commodity sell. Mm situation but i think it probably is now if you look at min the first thing i go to to try and work out what the ratio of the different commodities is is to go down to i'm in stock doctor go down to the earnings breakdown section which is kind of almost at the bottom of the right hand part of the first uh, of the front page in stock doctor and oftentimes it gives you an earnings breakdown by the product it's selling but in this case it, it doesn't always this time it's giving it to us by division which is just listed as central commodities and mining services and you can see from the breakdown that commodities is by far the biggest part of revenue and profit so we can't tell the breakup of commodities that simply so we then have to go to again the annual report or sometimes i go to a, an announcement which is a the company talking about its financial numbers presentation to analysts on their financial numbers and generally you'll find it there either in the annual report or in the presentation which will say here's how each of our commodities are going but the bigger question is once you know that if we know that there's a, a sizable part of min is coming from iron ore but not all of it because it also i think from memory has lithium yeah that, you know, whether we should make it a sell or not. But you can see on the share price, certainly the market factored into the share price, the decline in the iron ore price. Mm. It was a mistake, but I didn't have experience in this area. But I think going forward, I'm going to make these commodity sales if a large enough portion. And, you know, what's large enough portion, maybe 30% or more, comes from a commodity that's a three-point sell. I'm going through their FY21 investor presentation trying to find a breakdown iron ore versus lithium in their revenues. Haven't found it yet. Page 33 of their investor presentation is a pie graph, revenue by end user, and iron ore is mm-hmm. 75%. Lithium is maybe go. 20%, 15%. Gold, construction, and other is what makes up the balance, yeah. Right. Well, this is saying mining services 
which is another part of their business. So it's like the contracting part of their business. So we need the commodities part of their business. So you'd expect that they were contracting to iron ore miners and the, the contracting tap might turn off when the price is low, but that will be less than the effect of the iron ore export section of their business. A couple of pages, so that's on page 35. It's the commodity segments of uh, mineral resources. Yeah. And you can see that 1.5 billion out of 1.68 billion is iron ore yeah, right. sales. I should have called this as a three-point trend line sale. Even though commodities is not their total business, they have that mining services section as well. But yeah, it's a lot. And they also produce spodumene. That, I think that's the underlying lithium mineral. Spodumene is a pyroxene. Spodumene is a pyroxene mineral consisting yeah. of lithium aluminium in oscillate and is a source of lithium. We need to do a little bit of work with these mixed miners and figure out exactly what their uh, exposure is. Yeah, so I think upshot is I should have taken both MIN and AIS off our buy list because of iron ore declines. I think AIS from memory was, wasn't was as quite uh, as skewed to iron ore as mineral is, but yeah, we should take them. Okay. Off. Someone pointed out that AIS had iron ore in it when I was uh, removing FMG and BHP and Rio from our buy list. Let's talk about MMS back on the buy list. Yeah, so... Macmillan Shakespeare. It's a company I kind of watch. And I guess when you've done this for as long as I have, there are companies which continually come on and off the buy list. Not necessarily quickly, but they, they come and go. And Macmillan Shakespeare and Credit Corp for a long time were a cornerstone of my investing portfolio hmm. over the years. Macmillan, you know, and I guess Credit Corp will again soon become too expensive to be on the buy list. But they do pop in and pop out. They've always been good investments for me. All this new metals is similar over the years. Um, so yeah, so anyway, that's why I kind of like went, ooh, Macmillan Shakespeare's back on the buy list. It's worth having a look if people want to have a look. It's not at the top of the buy list. It's got a QAV score of, uh, it's a uh, 0.13, but it's got a very large-ish annual daily traded for people who are interested in such things. The company, without doing a full pulled pork, it's a company which uh, packages up or salary packages. So, you know, it uh, handles the paperwork for HAR departments if you want to take out a lease as part of your remuneration package or, you know, there are other things in there they pay for your golf club membership or whatever. It handles all the paperwork for that. It did fall foul of the federal government when Kevin Rudd was in power and uh, Wayne Swan, the world's greatest treasurer at the time, decided to do something funny with fringe benefits tax around salary sacrifice and change the rules. And Macmillan Shakespeare took a nosedive in terms of share prices. People thought that salary packaging was dead. But then, uh, uh, funnily enough, the government reversed its decision and then uh, salary packaging came back again the way it had been. It lasted about two weeks, I think, before they uh, backtracked from uh, lots of pressure, I imagine. Yeah, so that's what it does. It's uh, you know one of those just bred by the companies. That's all it does. Been doing it for years. You know, probably has a large market share. I don't want to do a full pull pork on it. But, uh, yeah, good to see it back on the buy list if people are interested uh, in adding something that's got a large ADT to their portfolio. Mm. Does well on the founder owner score too, I think, because William Shakespeare still owns a chunk of stock in that. He's uh, still around. <laughs> with Harold McMillan. Harold McMillan, yeah, the two of them yeah. teamed up. Yeah. You want to do your pulled pork for the week? Our stocks of the week, by the way, our large cap is EHL. You did a yep. Paul Pork on them a few weeks ago. So yeah. I think you're going to talk about CLX today. I am, yeah. And just an interesting thing happened about Amico EHL before I leave it. I was, again, deciding whether to do the, what to do the pulled pork on. 
and looking at their announcements and their CFO has resigned for EHL. But I uh, just did a quick look at it. looks like it's some kind of uh, stage transition. He's going to hang around for six months while they transit to uh, a new replacement. So I don't think it's anything to be uh, worried about in this particular case. CLX Logistics, speaking of owner founders, the the founder still holds nearly 40% of the company. So 35-ish percent of the company. So yeah, very strong owner founder contingents. I think the board in total hold around 40% of the company. Not a big company. It's um, only got ADT of $8,000. So that's why it's our small cap pick. And the market cap's only around 80 million. So it's not huge. It's uh, for people who don't know, which uh, they may not know about it. It's a logistics company. I think the interesting thing now is that it's a Perth-based logistics company. And uh, one, at least a large part of the company is operating with the uh, small transport companies and courier companies in Perth. And what's the thing we know about Perth Can in the last two years? No COVID, right? So probably the only transport company in Australia that's got all the uptick from deliveries to home, but none of the downside of having staff on the bench because of COVID. So it's doing well. Sales are up, profits up. And also too, not just the Perth side of it's up, but uh, they do do long haul to the eastern states and that's up too as just generally parcel deliveries are up because of COVID. So, yeah, it's riding a bit of a wave here and it's in a good space. Going through its numbers, QAV score 0.36. The quality score is 83%. PE is uh, less than 9, 8.8. Price to operating cash flow 2.32. So obviously a value play for us. Another good thing I like about a stock like this, low broker coverage. So we've got no forecast IV no forecast, earnings per shares, anything like that in Stock Doctor. So this is one of the ones that will eventually, I think, come onto the radar of some of the stockbrokers, but at the moment it hasn't. One downside, which is interesting, the financial health has gone down from strong to satisfactory, but it does tend to oscillate between those two metrics. So I'm not overly worried about that. I think it's probably just a six-month thing for this company. Strong yield, current yield is over 4%, so it scores well for us there. Equity, consistently increasing equity scores are zero over the last uh, six halves. But if you look at the last four halves, it's increasing. So it's, even though I'll score it as a zero, it's not overly worrying from that side of things. Net equity per share is $1.18, which is higher than the current share price of $0.96 cents as of uh, when I looked this morning, uh, the 11th of October. So we're actually buying this for less than its fire sale, its fire sale value, which is always attractive if you're an investor. And it scores a two for having a record low PE. So all in all, good investment, I think. What did you say the price to operating cash flow was again? Yeah, 2.3, 2.32. Very good. All right, CLX. Thank you for that. Have another look at that one. Time to get into the questions for this week, Tony. Yeah, good. Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. So if you're brand new, um, I just wanted to let you know that there's a free episode and a premium episode every week. The club episode, the premium episode, usually runs for another half hour to an hour. I think the total runtime of the full episode this week was about an hour and ten. And in the club edition, we discussed the ethics of buying coal stocks. We talk about using a 25-day moving average and whether or not Tony thinks there's any value in that. We talk about the timing for using the three-point trend line to sell stocks. Tony's thoughts on Elliott Wave Theory, Tony's view on letting emotions impact investing decisions and a review of Apollo Tourism's price, 
and Tony's take on how inflation might affect QAV theory. That's in the club edition, and if you're interested in checking that out, you can uh, go up to our website, just sign up for the free two-week trial, qavpodcast.com.au. There's a whole bunch of other benefits to being a QAV club member that which you can read about on the website. Uh, with that, please uh, have a safe week wherever you're living. Good luck with your investing. The market's a little bit choppy at the moment, so uh, keep your eye on it. And we'll be back next week. Cheers. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.